Just before we get started, you might notice there's one or two bits of our conversation today where there's some background noise. People have been trickling back into our studios, but hopefully it won't affect your enjoyment of this episode. I'm Ellie Kumar and this is My Voice, a series of conversations where we highlight the work of black and Asian people in the arts. We'll be hearing from some of the most exciting voices in literature, art, theatre, poetry, filmmaking and more, and tackling issues like representation and diversity in the industry. Today we're talking to writer Ifjania Bal, whose new book, Man-Hating Psycho, is out now. We chat about terrible first jobs and the unnecessary categorisation of almost everything in life. I quit school like a bit early and went off and just didn't really kind of give a shit about about anything and then somehow in amongst all that landed myself an internship at a magazine called Days of Confused where I worked there for years and I sort of like always you know when I got the internship I was like yeah I'm a writer I'm a writer because I wrote like little things and they sort of put me in editorial and there I stayed underpaid abused like you know, everyone thinking the job was great, but I thought it was great for a bit, but it was horrible. And then um, I got fired from days in a very sort of gossipy, bitchy way, the way you would imagine things like that go down in that place. From there, I was like, I decided to start writing my own stuff. I wasn't really sure what that was. I remember running into my old boss. I was like, oh, so what are you doing now? And I was like, oh, I'm writing a book. And he was like, oh, he's like, is it going to be an expose all about us? So I decided, because I hadn't started doing anything really, that, that it wasn't going to be an expose about there. And it was the last thing that I would do. So I wrote a book called The Hardy Tree, which is about a tree in St Pancras. Yeah, and that was the beginning of what I consider, you know, what I actually do. I, I very regret, much regret my time at Dazed in a way, but I sort of enjoy regretting it. But it definitely got me practising as well, because the thing with that, you had to turn over a lot of writing. Like, all the writing was terrible. Like, if you look back at it now, like, I'm surprised no one reads it. There's probably something to be said for having those jobs early on that are just awful and really grind you down but then kind of give you that experience to know I guess even just I know I never want to be in that position again yeah and it's also interesting having been in that kind of media environment because now when I bring books out like I think a lot of my friends who write like how I write have a very like they hold those kind of institutions up on pedestals like it's this amazing thing and it's like I know being in there it's like we need an article about a band look through the cds you've been sent choose one interview band it's like completely whatever at least that's how I did it <laughs> anyway so yeah it took away the kind of myst- mystique of it all you know and I know it's just a bunch of sort of middle-aged men who listen to hip-hop and like hide their ball patch <laughs> what was anything wrong with being bald <laughs> no of course not but <laughs> And yeah, and I think so many people have been in those kind of jobs and those positions and kind of thought, oh, yeah, but this is what I'm supposed to do to get ahead. And like everyone has to do it. And I guess at some point you just have to say, no, this is just this isn't good. This isn't a good place to be for for like young people trying to start out in, in their careers. I think a lot of these things from the style mags to even the larger ones, you know, they exploit the enthusiasm of youth, you know. Everyone who's had it done to them knows. (laughs) Your new book, Man Hating Psycho, which is out now, where did that come from? My brain. I don't know. Uh, It just sort of came together. The book that I'd done before, which came out in two editions, Mercedes-Benz and uh, Death and Facebook, it was called. There's two different versions of it. I kind of gave up after that. I was very, very despondent, especially about the UK publishing scene, because I can't go with a big one because morally I object to almost all of them 
all the small presses just seemed, I don't know, like overly pretentious. Oh, we're like arty and academic and we're really cleverer than everyone. And like, I don't really like like that. I like like trashy writing rather than like pretending to be highbrow and so I sort of gave up but then Kit who is my publisher at Influx sort of at one point was like we would do a book with you la 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 and then I ignored him for ages and suddenly I was just like oh maybe I should do something and I got in touch with him and then from getting in touch with him I took some texts that had already existed in certain ways and sort of worked them some new texts and all just sort of came together into this single book. I think a lot of people have this idea that to write I mean I don't know I've never written a book but I think you've got this idea that oh you've got to have this like big idea and it's been there for years and it's been germinating and I think I don't know maybe sometimes it is just lots of little things that come together into one but then reading it it doesn't seem like you know like disjointed or kind of like different elements one of the things that I noticed was this idea of love in all the stories and not necessarily like romantic love love of like family and friends and even love of like a place was that a choice when you were putting things together were there other elements or other like short stories and things that you thought "Mm, maybe that doesn't quite fit there were things that didn't quite fit but it wasn't a conscious thought it's just like how I am I would say that most writers who are real writers for want of a better term are people who kind of care about things very much and care is love so yeah I give a shit like about stuff that everyone always tells me they're like oh why'd you give a shit and it's just like well I don't know I just do so yeah so with collections like this it can sometimes be quite hard to tell for like from a reader's perspective I guess where kind of like the fiction ends and the writer starts is that something that you do do you put a lot of yourself into these pieces or do you try and keep yourself removed I suppose that, you know, the way I see it, I mean, all writing is very deceitful, right? It's a completely controlled thing. You might have an editor or this, but to my mind, genre is is a con. And this idea of writing biography or autobiography or fiction or this, some people do do it. You know, you can write a biography about a person. Even that puts a lot of yourself in it, but that aside I get very tired of oh what sections should this book go in in the bookshop and writers writing to to fill those sections it's like I write and I don't really care what it is I'm happy to tell a completely true story and then just make up a bit in the middle I know people that know me it drives them crazy because they're like yeah 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 wait that didn't happen it's like who cares it's writing you know I'm only interested in the writing and I guess as a reader you're interested in the story but the readers are very often unaware of where they're getting the story from you know, the actual story. They're reading the information. They're like, this is what the writer's telling me, but the story forms somewhere else. I'm just interested in words on pages and what they do, like a magic stuff. For the majority of readers, I guess, won't know you. So it doesn't really matter if there's a bit, you know, it's not going to make a difference to me and my enjoyment of the story or following the narrative to be. But I guess, yeah, maybe for like the couple of people that were there and know what happened, it would be a bit like, oh, did that happen? Did I, did I miss that whole thing? Well, then what's interesting as well is when it's 10 years later, they forget what actually happened. And the only version is the one I've written down. So they're like, oh, I guess that was it was what it was. That's really interesting to think about, especially when you look at like this idea of technology. Some of the elements in the book focus quite a lot on technology. So like in text messages or the group chat idea. And then we're speaking on Zoom now. This series probably wouldn't have happened if the whole boom in like Zoom and 
technology and stuff hadn't happened, which was down to the pandemic, really. Has the pandemic affected you and your work and particularly like Man Hating Psycho and how it's come out? No, you know, I mean, if anything, this whole time for me, like the only interesting aspect of it personally, like and obviously I care that a lot of people are dying and stuff, but like, the only interesting aspect of it to me personally is it seems to have revealed a lot of things and people for what they really are. I just, I would just be sitting here in a lot of personal situations being like feeling quite smug about how white I was ages ago. I mean, it doesn't make a difference because the stuff that I think and I know still has no bearing on anything. But no, you know, like I'm not someone who is easily swayed by media shitstorms. <laughs> in terms of getting the book out, has it changed the way that you've had to deal with publishers and, and that world? And has it maybe improved things for the better? All the publishers I've had, I've had save one, I've had like intensely personal relationships with. Not that I'm having sex with them, I'm not. You know, they're my friends and they come about through entirely non-professional ways. Even the one publisher I had who is sort of professional, I was sort of like tacked on the end of their professional thing. So yeah, no, it hasn't really shifted for me. Like I work in... in professionally in a quite like intuitive way I would never just go along with someone who I wasn't sure of which is why I publish so slowly and so this is a question that we ask everyone and you can interpret this however you want in terms of work and writing or just like everyday life and your life and experiences but do you feel represented I feel represented by myself yeah, I represent myself. I mean, how many people are paying attention to that? I don't know, but yeah. And do you feel like that's something that you've had to create yourself or you've had to do yourself because it was missing from other parts of like society? Yeah, it is missing, but like I don't see that. I don't, wouldn't want someone else to be representing for me. Like, I don't know who that on earth it would be, to be honest. I actually find a lot of these kind of conversations with the kind of buzzwords of diversity and representation, I don't know, a bit weird. Like, to be honest, the structures in the creative industry that are powerful all have their roots in some horrible corrupt individuals and why the idea that somehow I would want to aspire to be part of that if I publish with Penguin for instance not only would I not be able to publish the way that I publish like even if they let me do whatever I want it would be completely undermined by having their logo on the book because of what they stand for because of the way they operate because of the bully boy tactics it's like I'm not interested I'm not interested so I prefer to just do something else. And I also feel like the idea of this mono landscape that the media and history portray, it's like, fine, let them sit there thinking that Henry VIII was the most important person ever and blah, blah, blah. It's boring to me. I felt like that in school. It was boring to me. And while I understand things like they should teach black history in schools. Yeah, they should teach black history in schools, kind of. But it's like, who wants to learn history from school? I don't. I don't want to learn. I don't want those people or those organisations or those institutions to be the thing that allows me to, to learn and know and discover stuff. I'm not interested. Obviously, the last year, we've seen quite a lot of these campaigns for like the black curriculum and to bring more education around wider topics into schools but if schools in general aren't connecting with kids in the first place then it's not really going to make much of a difference like whatever the curriculum is you know I'm not going to advocate for the abolishment of education although I wish I could you know it's very it was very obvious to me very early 
on what school was for like and it's for several different things but like at the point where you've got a kid reading and writing and not doing shits in the middle of the classroom and geography it's like what you're basically doing is trying to get them a career and a job and it's like to me that's a very narrow and completely tiresome agenda of adults people talk about ageism a lot oh poor old people it's like the way that a lot of adults treat children their own children other people's children I mean, I would never, I wouldn't, you know, I would never like lie to a kid the way that some of my teachers barefaced lied to me. I think there are other people that feel the same, but they're not very vocal because um, I think also a lot of people who talk about putting like black history in the curriculum and stuff like that, or, or any other subject akin to that, you know, they're people who believe in the system. And like, of course, I believe that the system exists. I can see it outside my window, but I'm not like enfranchised into it. I don't, you know, I want the minimal from it. A lack of interference from the state is like my ideal. That's what I'd like. Freedom from these weird modes of governance. Piece victim blaming. You go a little bit into the idea of, of like talking within families about race and what that can mean for kids. For my family, we never spoke about it ever. And we didn't speak about what it meant for my parents being together or what that kind of meant for me growing up and interacting with either side of my family or just in schools. And just when I read like, victim blaming, it did really resonate with me, these feelings of how you talk about it. And it is something that I've particularly over the last year been like dealing with and eventually I like, ended up speaking to my parents about. How do you feel about that? And how important do you feel it is for families to, to talk about it to kids? I have shifting thoughts on this topic, like I think anyone, everyone does really, except for your kind of sworn in neo-Nazi, the only person who's sure what he thinks. I don't know, I think in a certain way I look at the decision my parents made to just like ignore all of it and get on with it as like quite an optimistic decision, because in a way it doesn't matter. Another friend of, of mine said something along the same lines, she said, you know, my understanding of racism is that it's it's rude to sort of point out someone's black but then suddenly that changed to it's rude to not point it out you know or not kind of acknowledge it in some way my dad said to me he you know when he read that piece about growing up and me sort of trying to piece together the history of my family the answers my ancestry you know he said to me that he said you know you have to realize that this is a very new new thing and it got me thinking because I thought, well, of course it is and it isn't, but it's like, it's almost like we've just reached this point. You know, there's sort of enough of a lull and enough distance from some really traumatizing things to be able to look back. And I think, you know, my grandparents' generation, they arrive in Europe and they're like, oh, let's just try and fit in, you know, and also for them, because the history is their own history, they don't need to remember it you know it's like I don't sit here being like well, what what actually did happen when I was five I think on one hand my parents are very optimistic to not discuss it on another hand it's a bit of a betrayal and but I think it's not just their betrayal it's the betrayal of several generations and also the people that cause these traumas on these different ethnic groups but the decision I've come to at the moment I find all the divisions really difficult you know and it's like being mixed and I would say I'm, I'm mixed between my parents. Everyone is mixed, right? And like we divide people into these groups of people. And at the moment, it's nice to be like the oppressed one. It's like, so no one wants to be white. I wish race in the way that it's discussed at the moment, even though it's with the best intentions, was slightly more inclusive of everyone. 
I think the the example that brought it to my mind a couple of weeks, I can't even remember when it was now, but was doing the census and getting the, the census form and my partner's white and we were filling it in. And so he'd filled his section in and then he was filling my section in and he was and he just said, oh, this is really interesting. I've never had to click down and had to have the sort of the drop down after white, which I just thought was really, really interesting. That's something that I'm so used to you know, in all like forms and things now, because it seems like you can't do anything without filling in like 10 forms. But also these forms are just so dodgy because it's like the way that they're designed. It's like, I always take great pleasure in just clicking black other, but it's like, there, there ain't no black Jew box, that's for sure. <laughs> like the beta Israel box, <laughs> not that I'm beta Israel. The other side of it is, you know, a friend of mine, she's white and she was saying, isn't it weird that there's just like one box for white? Because it's like, there's loads of different white ethnicities that overlap. I, I actually was having a conversation with a friend of mine who was talking about the censuses in Rhode Island. And they were saying that the censuses in the US, within one census of 10 years, I can't remember what the era was, it went from something like 80% ethnic minority and 20% white to exactly the other, to actually exactly the opposite. And he was saying, well, why, why did this happen? And it's not because loads of people arrived and moved there. It's because the way that white people got defined was expanded. So Italians originally, you know, in the US would not be counted as white. And then they were Irish was, a, was its own separate group. And of course, like being Irish is an incredibly different thing to being English. It's like, forget about white, like even within these small British Isles. And so while they, while the rhetoric is to break down other ethnicities into more and more and more specific things, but in the end mean absolutely nothing unless you're actually from the place where you're from you know it's just meaningless it's absolutely meaningless I you know I resent having to do it and this is again what gets back to it's like why I just think it's almost pointless fighting against it because you're fighting against imbeciles I've started to really resent having to kind of give this information mm -hmm. and putting like classification in in everything in my sexuality or my job and my employment status and it just sort of feels like everything is getting more and more categorized into little boxes and you need to have this and you need to check this off and you need to tell people this and it feels quite overwhelming sometimes the amount of I guess the amount of information that people it's need horrendous. it's horrendous um let me just wait for that silent I I think that um I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, like especially when there are things that just have absolutely nothing to do with like any of the, th the information that they're asking for. And I was thinking we basically live in a country that is every economic opportunity is sort of saturated, right? It's like, oh, they're expanding the most or being collapsed. It's like the only thing that they're still doing is like data. So it's like, they're like data vampires. They're like, give us your data, give it to us. We want more, more. And they're like, look, we've got a big group of black people also, the thing that makes those boxes so awful is like when you don't have one that's actually accurate, you know, it's like filling in a kind of quiz in Just 17. It's like, how do you feel after your boyfriend dumps you? And they give you five options. You're like, well, I don't feel any of those things. They're like, well, you have to click one. It's absolute nonsense. Because there's so many times that you're like, oh, well, that doesn't really apply, but that's the closest thing. So all of this information is probably not even relevant anyway, because it's not even accurate. Exactly. It's bollocks. Yeah. The job that I do has very much like disenfranchised me from not from like politics and stuff because I do think it is important but like when you see just the, this kind of idea of like left and right and different parties that all say the same thing just in different words and all kind of 
they say all this stuff and it's like whatever they say you know it's not really true or they're not really going to do it and I find it quite hard to get enthusiastic or to get amped up about any personal project because I just feel like yeah but how long is this going to last? People who have always been at the bottom I think have less expectations of like some great thing happening but because so many people who would traditionally be at the bottom have now been pushed into the middle I'm talking about class like I guess working class you know and now these people have expectations and and also I think the thing with social media is it's brought the lives of people who have really like flash lives right into other people's faces so they can see how many times Mick Jagger's kids went to the Maldives you know and they're like wait a second before they never knew you know but all those and all those expectations, I mean, on one hand, it's good, but it's like I have no you know, good feeling that any of those expectations that people have of society are going to be fulfilled. So obviously these are things that come up in your writing, especially talking about people's everyday lives, which I think is is really important in terms of kind of like the books that we read and the things that we see on TV and everything, because it, it, it does give people something to kind of, to look at and to think, yeah, that, that might, you know, it might not reflect your life exactly, but it's just a way of looking at other people's lives, which I think is something that is really important. And I don't know, personally, I find a lot of people don't really do that a lot now. And people kind of don't look at like other people's lives as much as they look at their own. No, because they all egomaniacs. <laughs> I mean, I think it's true. It's interesting having glimpses of things you don't know in books. But like for me, that it sort of lies somewhere else. Uh, and I think that, you know, of all types of sort of cultural output, people feel like books ask a lot of you. But actually, books are sort of the one thing that don't conspire your time, conspire to kind of steal your time. And also it's private. You know, it's like everything else you can listen to music on your own but like on the whole it's more you know all these things are more public reading is like the only thing where there's literally nothing nothing else asked of you except sort of carry on and, and I think I think in a way that's that's the really important thing that books do because they sort of allow your brain to stop caring what your friend said to you about this that last week or it's like yeah it's private it's one of the last private things that we have reading sleeping obviously you write because that's what you want to do and you're writing for yourself I guess mostly but when you think about people who are going to read Man Hating Psycho and your other work as well what would you hope that they would take away from it if anything? Get a giggle first and yeah just I mean I think all, all what all my books are trying to do is just put a little bit of pressure and kind of tease away at the fabric of reality you know which is all formed through narrative and just make people reconsider like I've had a lot of very firm beliefs and like you know even in this interview like I can say things which then a week later it's not that I won't think them but I might think them slightly differently or apply them and change and that kind of fluidity and just questioning yeah just trying to make people question the things that they think and why they think them but then also realize that like actually while the world at the moment seems quite annoying and unjust as it is it's also like hilarious you know and that's the thing is like when you start talking about like oh the ethnic minority boxes and which of this and, da, 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 and it's like it's wrong it's bad and it's like no it's not it's really funny because it's like watching it's like watching clowns it's like watching clowns in a ring like just do these completely absurd things and yeah so it's trying to get 
to that kind of space of the, the funniness of a, an absurdity of, of things. Man-Hating Psycho by Evgenia Ball is out now from Influx Press and you can find out more online. This Is My Voice is a series created by me, Ellie Kumar. Thank you.